Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. My name's Cowboy Keith, I'm your host, and today we're going to talk to James Hags Haggerty, noted Nashville bassist. Here's what we talked about, I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Cowboy. How you doing, Hags? Doing quite well. It's nice to have you here on Nashville Soul Music. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a beautiful day in your, your wonderful home here in Inglewood, Tennessee, place where we all live, East Nashville, Tennessee. East Nashville is a pretty special place. It certainly is. Start at the beginning. Where were you born, Hags? I was born in Queens, New York in the year of 1970 on the day November 21st. And in fact, I just found out yesterday that uh, the Grateful Dead played in Boston on my birthday and Dwayne Allman was there and they went down to WBCN in Boston and recorded something on the radio on the day of my birth, which I thought was pretty cool. That's cool. It's always yeah. nice to know that some sort of a landmark happened on your birthday. Yeah. Besides my birth. <laughs> yes. Which we all know is the most important. Momentous. So you were, uh, you were born. I was. And raised there in Queens. Is that right? Well, I uh, lived in Queens for a little while and then uh, my parents and my brother and myself, my parents bought a house on Long Island, and that's where I grew up. Now, when did you, uh, what was the first instrument that you played? Bass. Well, no, that's not true. I, I wanted to be a drummer, and my dad was like a marching band drummer. Oh, wow. And so I said, you know, I want to play drums, and my brother played guitar, and so we wanted to have a band, of course. And uh, one year at Christmas, uh, I, I got a snare drum and a hi-hat, and I remember that uh, we were in church and I wanted to leave early because I was so excited to uh, get home. But I never got like a kick drum or toms or anything. And so after about a year, I realized I couldn't play, you know, Led Zeppelin songs on a snare drum and a hi-hat, at least not very well. And so I ended up giving that away to a friend who became a drummer. And uh, there was a kid up the block and uh, he found like a 60s, I think it was a Kent hollow body in a garbage can on our block. And he's like, hey, why don't you plunk on this for a while and it sort of let me borrow it and I had that for a while and I got blisters on my fingers and I thought you know bass is pretty cool and so I must have been probably I think I probably was around 12 or 13 years old when I started playing bass however many years later and I, and I guess I realized that people who hire me like what I do when when did the uh, music drug click when did you get hooked? Ooh, I think pretty much right away yeah I don't know if I realized it or not but I, I guess you know, growing up on Long Island and, and uh, you know, it was either like sports or academics. And I was, you know, like every kid needs something that they can go, you know, this is what I'm good at, you know. And for some it's sports and for others it's academics or whatever. And, and music sort of became my uh, my thing, you know, and that sort of carried me through the, the sort of painful you know, adolescence or whatever, you know, that was my thing where I could be like, Hey, I I can do this, you know? And, um, and then as I got older and I didn't really need it for that anymore, I sort of always played, but, but it became less of an identity or whatever, and more of just something that I enjoyed. And then, you know, when I finished college and I was sort of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, I realized that music was what I really loved and that was what I was really good at. And that's probably what I should do. You know, and I think that was almost like a second click where it was more of like a life choice more than just a 
uh, I don't know, something to do. Mark uh, Pazapia and I, who I ended up moving to Nashville with to play with he and his brother in a band for several years, uh, we met in college. He was carrying a kick drum into our dorm, and I was like, hey, man, you know, uh, you should knock on my door. Let's play. And uh, he did, and and that was in uh, 1989, and here it is, you know, 2014, and I just was hanging out with him and Joe last night, and, and we're talking about, you know, getting together and playing, you know, this week. So, you know, I think that's pretty unique and I know I'm sort of getting off track here, but you know, uh, uh, somebody that I met when I was uh, 18 or 19 years old, I'm now, you know, have been in a rhythm section with for however many years that is. I'm 43. So what is that? 24 years. (laughs) I told my son that too. I said, uh, you know, music friends are friends you make for life. Totally. Yeah, and you only, you know, that band, it was called Joe Mark's Brother, and uh, it was really a special band for all of us. And, and I feel like, yeah, that, 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 you know, it's almost, you're fused together. You know, if, if, you've, if you don't hate each other and, and it didn't go south and somebody's, you know, everybody else is broke and somebody's rich and all that, like, you know, we all love each other. And it's a really special thing. And I think that's something that, that we all share, you know, you and me and, and everybody involved in this. It's like, you know, of course, this is what we do for a living, but it's also like a labor of love. And I laugh all the time, you know, when I'm not, you know, sweating the bills or whatever, that, that I actually get to do this, you know, at this level uh, for, 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 for my life's work. It's, it's awesome. Even, even the friend you have on a, on a shitty gig that you rather forget, that friend sticks with you. You know, twenty years later, you see that guy, man, do you remember that yeah, job? And you we still did laugh together? about the shitty gig. Holy cow. <laughs> That lady was nuts, or that guy was crazy. Yeah. Or that venue, well, I think it burned down, you know. <laughs> yeah, we just did a gig with the Autumn Defense up in Chicago, and uh, it was a crazy weird venue. It was like security guys with, you know, the Garth Brooks mics and real big dudes, and it's like like a whole bunch of them, and it was like way over, everything was just overdone. And it was obvious that they, they weren't used to doing music in there, and uh, it sounded horrible, and it was dank. And then we, uh, two weeks later, you know, the the ceiling caved in on a bunch of people, like oh, wow. during a like an a, a, what do they call that EDM, uh, electronic dance music. You oh, know, the yeah. bass was just uh, like just you shaking know, the place apart. And the ceiling just caved in. Oh man! So anyway, that was kind of a crappy gig for for that for them. So you, you, let's go back to Long Island. What did your dad do? What what what, what was his job? My dad uh, sold insurance for Metropolitan Life for his entire career and that is a hard job and he was an honest that's the Snoopy company right? yeah Snoopy company did and you have some a, sweet Snoopy swag is that came good? later you know okay. they weren't that was more like in the I would think the 80s late 80s early 90s and but I, I you know I, I got some cool swag like Metropolitan Life uh, tape measures and you know it was you know very very helpful double his walkie talkies young man yeah, yeah you know like the, my dad's <laughs> appointment books you know all that stuff's like spy gear you know I could like write down my my secrets so how many siblings do you have I have one brother his name is Paul my dad's name was Paul my mom's name is Mary uh, my dad is no longer with us but he was awesome and a drummer and a huge music fan and my mom's a huge music fan now what was your parents musical influence on you well my, my mom now is 82 so you know they got married late you know were almost 40 when I was born. So, you know, my, both my parents were born in 1932. And so I think that what I grew up with, you know, even like sociologically, however you want to say it, movies, music, books, all of it, like those important things were all of a different generation. And, and musically, like my dad, you know, 
being, you know, World War II generation, my mom too, like my dad loved Glenn Miller, you know, and he had like Glenn Miller records. And uh, were they down with Lawrence Welk? Eh, not really. They were a little cooler than that. And, and, and both my parents, my mom was from Pennsylvania and then moved to the Bronx when she was like 17, like, you know, pretty much right after World War II. Uh, and lived in one of the Quonset huts for a little while up in the Bronx that they put together for soldiers coming back from the war with her brother wow. and his wife. And, and my dad was living in Jamaica, Queens. And so when they would go out on dates, you know, this is years later in the late 50s or whatever, or I guess early, late 50s, early 60s when they met, and they would go see jazz, you know, like in Manhattan, you know, just on dates. You know, I think they might have even seen like, you know, Jack Teagarden and people like that. Wow. So I don't know if they thought that was hip that was just what they liked you know but they 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 were too old for rock and roll they thought rock and roll was was stupid you know they were jazz people they were they were big band people they they were you know and so there was a great jazz station from Connecticut I think it was called WJAZ and that was always on on the clock radio in the kitchen and and then you know I remember that the the cool stereo that we had broke which was probably a tube stereo and they just threw it away in the eighties and got like a Sony uh, modular unit. But I still have the speakers, uh, that I grew up with, which is awesome. So just a lot of jazz and some classical and uh, big band. And I remember laughing at like Joe Beam and stuff because I thought his voice sounded funny. You know, my brother <laughs> and I would make fun of it. And now like I, I play it, I love it, you know? And, uh, I had really great musical experiences, uh, too growing up. Like I had a great teacher, great bass teacher in my town in the local music store who was seemed like an older like an old guy but he was probably 25 when I was 14 but he seemed you know like really old but he was really hip dude and he played he didn't play like Van Halen he played like jazz guitar almost like you know Les Dudek or Al Dimiola and he wasn't really interested in soloing he was like interested in coming up with cool substitutions and a killer rhythm part you know and he was my bass teacher and he just taught me a, a whole lot. He's the only only guy that that only proper lessons that I ever really took. But I, I studied with him for about five years, and then when I was about fifteen, my parents uh, realized that my brother and I were pretty into music and that they should probably get a piano. And uh, and my dad had this friend uh, who was an old jazz cat, and he started giving us piano lessons. And he would have these jazz jams at his house with like these old jazz cats like it was like hey why don't you come to my house and we started sitting in playing these jazz standards with like these old jazz cats you know playing vibes and flute and saxophone and 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 he'd be on piano and you know like take the a train and things like that and it would come around and he'd be like take a solo you know and you would just have to do it you know you know and but that's cool i mean those kind of experiences are what sort of form you as a musician or as a you know as a young person and sort of push you you know, into the life, I guess, you know. All right, so now let's go to Nashville. Okay. You moved to Nashville with with, uh, with Joe, Piz- Joe Pizzapia and... Well, those guys were already here. They were they had, already down here. I got here in 97, and they had been here for a few years and had gotten their band together and were doing really well. And uh, it was one of those moments in life. I was working at a law firm in Manhattan. I was in their marketing department. I had been out of school for about a year and was trying to figure out like, how am I going to be an artist? What am I going to do? You know, and uh, couldn't figure it out. Didn't so really... you went the business path. At yeah, I did for a little while because I got so frustrated at being broke and I thought I might write and I was just trying to figure it out. And uh, I was playing in a band with my brother and um, 
you know, long hair, earring, like I'm a rocker. This is just my day job, you know? And, uh, I did that for, was it business in the front and party in the back? No, it was pretty much, it was, it was the nineties. So it was pretty much all one length, you know, a la Michael Hutchins or Michael Stipe only. I didn't, I thought I looked that cool or wanted to look that cool, but (laughs) did not anyway. Um, and I, and I realized that you had to pick one that I couldn't like do the, the, the day gig like that and hope to become a, you know, wait for the money to come in, you know, and so that I could quit and, you know, do the music thing. I, I just realized that it was, I had to, I had to go for it. And I was like meditating a lot and really trying to figure out, you know, really open, just like, you know, show me the path because, because I can't figure it out, you know? So literally there, my band imploded and their bass player quit like on the same day. Click, 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 click. This is where you're supposed to go. All right. So you're in Nashville and uh, I know you clicked uh, records. Yeah, I do. When did the, I mean? Did, was that a continuation, or did you? Yeah, or did it you, was. Or is that something you revisited and it grew? It, it did grow, but it was definitely a continuation. You know, I I never really stopped listening to records. You know, like um, definitely had more CDs than vinyl. But but it, living in Brooklyn at the time where I was living before I came here, there were stoop sales. You know, and that was one of my favorite things to do on the weekend. I was living in Cobble Hill, and it was cheap paid six fifty a month for the top floor of a brownstone that would probably be three thousand dollars now or something but there were all these stoop sales and that was one of my favorite things to do was just walk around the neighborhood like get a cup of coffee and there would be all these stoop sales and i remember this one like i was pro- you know i was in my 20s at this time and this guy was probably 10 years older than me real hip looking dude looked like he could have been in the clash or something and it was obvious that his girlfriend was moving in they were moving in together and so they were like purging I could tell he didn't really want to show me, but he's like, I got all these records inside, man. You you interested? And it was all Clash and English Beat and all this like British stuff. And he ended up, I ended up buying them for like a buck a piece, and I still have them here. Uh, you know, Phonolux uh, was great, and you know, uh, Grimey's opened pretty shortly thereafter, and that was in Berry Hill, and I was working at Salmon Zoe's in Berry Hill, ninety nine or two thousand, something like that. And so I had all this coffee shop tip income in my pocket and I would go buy, you know, a record or two. I'm on the way home from work and I actually did work. I would sit there and watch the store form for, for credit a lot of times. So until I set the alarm off a couple of times. So did you ever ask me again? Your record collection grow leaps and bounds once you had planted roots here. Yeah, absolutely. See, for me, I was a man with all this high quality CD audio. Why would I ever want a record again? This is, this is dumb. And then when I start looking for things, that I couldn't find on CD, and this there was no database at that point. Right, and this is like uh, early '90s. I realized that it was, what was more important to me was the music that was on the records was more yeah. important than the fidelity of the records. Mm-hmm. So then, that's what relaunched my love of collecting records. I think that that's true for me too, and especially with like the jazz stuff. You know, you know, you'd be like, oh, I really like Clark Terry. You know, he's on this record, you know, and you buy it for three dollars. It's like you could take a gamble and and try something and not feel bad if you didn't really like it. You know what I mean? So so that the the jazz collecting kind of grew for me a lot at that time because you could just, yeah, oh, you know, sure. Vibes record. I'll check that out. Sure. Why not? You know, Lionel Hampton. Great. You know, I just bought a record at at Amoeba in San Francisco in the hate. It's called Crazy Otto and his organ. (laughs) And I said, I don't know what's on this record. 
but I need to own it. <laughs> yeah. No, I love records, man. And, and, but I love going to the, to the shelf where the records are looking at it, deciding what it is that I want to hear, thinking about it, pulling it off, pulling it out of the sleeve, walking over to the machine that makes it make sound, turning it on, you know, moving the needle over, putting it on. It's like, you're directly involved in the process. It's almost like a direct line from the studio to your ear. A friend of mine compared compared it to stoking a fire. So you you got that fire going, and you and the music is the fire, man. Oh, I love this fire. Oh, the fire's fading out. I got to turn it over and keep that fire going. Right. So you you have a a direct physical connection to keeping that music going, to playing it, selecting it. That's, yeah. That's the tending of the fire that makes it even more interesting. Totally. Well, let's talk about gigs. Uh, I first became aware of Hags when he played with Josh Rouse. Mm-hmm. So what was your first big professional gig that you were like, wow, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this? Well, I mean, Joe Monk's brother thing, that was a band. And we did, you know, we did well and, and we, we made a little bit of money, but I always, during that time, I had to have a day gig. And then that, that band, we kind of decided to take a break and it was, it was like, wow, you know, what am I going to do now? And then right about that time, maybe a year later, uh, the Josh Rouse gig came along and Mark uh, Pazapia was the drummer and I was the bass player. So we were the rhythm section in his band from about 2002 to like 2008 or 2009. And that was great. You know, like we played on the records and he was really ascending at that time. His, his popularity was really growing there. And a year after that, we were in a bus, you know, and that was great. And, 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 you know, going over to the UK all the time and all over the world, really, you know, all over Europe and going to places like Brazil and France and, Sweden. Well, I always admired your playing on that stuff. Hags is the man. Ah, thanks, man. <laughs> you, you and Billy Mercer are, are my two favorite. Billy's great, man. Electric bass players on this side of town. Thank sure. you. Billy's great. Yeah, yeah, and a good, a good pal for sure. So let's talk about the music you brought with you today. What okay. you, what did you bring? Well, I brought a few things. You told me to bring one thing, and I brought three things. That's okay. So I brought. Les McCann and Eddie Harris, The Swiss Movement, recorded live at the Montreux Jazz Festival, Switzerland, 1970. It's a great record. And I brought Donny Hathaway live. Interesting two live records. I didn't really think about it. And then I have one other um, song. It is Backdoor Santa, but but it's killer, man. And, it, oh, it's the sample, you know, that they use in Christmas in Hollis, you know, the horns. It's that song. Let's talk about Inglehood Records. Okay. Now, starting with our good friend Hags here. Starting with the bass. Starting at the bottom. <laughs> starting at the low end and building it up. And uh, Hags plays bass on all the Inglehood Records. We're glad to have him as a part of it. It's been real fun. What, what have you taken away from this experience so far? My association with yeah. Inglehood Records? Man, it's just great. We were just sitting here listening to the music that we've recorded. And, and I think that, that it's authentic. You know, yeah, comes from the heart. Yeah, that everybody involved, all the players and and you and the singers, that it's just, it's from the heart. It's real. It's fun. um, Doesn't take itself too seriously, but everybody's bringing their best, you know. Yeah, and we're going to interview all the members of the band alongside of uh, Steve Cropper and Felix Cavieri, Lulu Marini, Jim Horn. And uh, Gene Crispin, who played on Son of a Preacher Man. We, there's a lot of great interviews we're going to have coming up on the podcast. It's, it's very cool. And uh, I'm excited about it. You out there listening should get excited about it. And uh, please don't 
be afraid to visit NashvilleSoulMusic.com. And uh, Hags, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, we look forward to hearing Hags on a lot of future recordings and look for him with the Autumn Defense. Uh, this has been Nashville Soul Music. I'm Cowboy Keith Thompson. That was James Hags Haggerty. Please visit NashvilleSoulMusic.com. And uh, in two weeks, look for another broadcast. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.